Welcome everyone to Bulldog Bites, practical tips for busy GCs. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a partner with Womble Carlisle's Business Litigation Practice Group. With me today is our guest, Christian Maza, legal counsel with Valencell, a leading innovator in high-performance biometric sensor technologies for wearables. Christian earned his JD from UNC and has in-house and law firm experience. Christian, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Mark. Great. Uh, in addition to Christian, I've got my partner, Ted Claypool, um, who heads up our firm's data management and cybersecurity team. Ted's a bit of a thought leader when it comes to uh, legal implications surrounding privacy. Ted, thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you for having me. Terrific. You know, we've got an interesting topic. I really want to deal with issues surrounding privacy, maybe some information security as they relate to sensors. And maybe, Ted, if you could just start and kind of set the table a little bit in terms of what this, you know, what this field covers and, and what, we're, what we're dealing with. I know you've written a book dealing with some of these issues, but uh, tell our listeners a little bit about the field, and then I'll ask Christian to talk a little bit about what Valencell's doing. Well, we're about, I wouldn't say midway in, but we're, we're in the beginning stages of something that, that people are referring to as the Internet of Things, um, which sounds somewhat silly, but think about it a little bit. It, basically, what it means is we are Internet-enabling um, a number of different kinds of objects. And the way we think about that is there's two sides to Internet enabling, something that's out in the real world. First is sensors, which we're really going to talk about. The second is some sort of connectivity, so that whatever you're enabling can sense something, and then it can send out a signal about what it sensed. And if you have both of those things, a lot of times that creates a feedback loop. So you sense, you send a signal, a signal comes back, you change what you're sensing, you sense something different, it goes back. So that's what allows, for example, uh, self-driving cars or automatic drones, for that matter, in that in the, you have that feedback loop. And one of the things that I know Mark and I have talked about before is that and I use this because it's a good example and nobody understands it at first, but that the city of Charlotte uptown has internet-enabled trash cans. Okay, that sounds ridiculous, but it's not. They have sensors, and the sensor in them tells whether they're full or not. And once they're full, they have a signaling device that signals back to the city to come pick them up. Empty them out, because they're full. So the city of Charlotte needs less people to come pick up the trash, because they don't do it every day. They only pick up the ones that are full, because it's internet-enabled and they know about it. So this is the kind of thing we're talking about, either really sophisticated applications like automobiles and trucks and warehouse forklifts, for example, that can operate themselves, or on the other end, something as simple as a camera or the uh, Nest device that acts as your thermostat. Is it too hot? Is it too cold? You can just say, Alexa, uh, <laughs> turn the thermostat down to 71. And it will because it is internet-enabled. So that's what we're talking about. And we're moving from a stage, a preliminary stage, where some of the first products are having this to a stage where everybody's exploring how they can use it better. And one of the main places that we're going to see more of it is clothing, our wearables, what we call wearables. And we're seeing that with watches and Fitbits now. And um, there's all sorts of clothing applications that are being considered right now by many of our uh, clothing manufacturer and retail clients. 
So this is just sort of where it's going. That's great. And I appreciate you talking about the trash cans because I think some people think of this as high tech. It's got to be the smart watch or my smartphone. I mean, we know there's sensors in a smartphone that track where we are and what we're doing and, you know, often how fast we're moving. But but we don't tend to think about sensors in things like trash cans and refrigerators and, and, and clothing. So I, I think that that is an interesting dynamic. And I guess I want to explore a little bit today some of the legal concerns, because I guess for our GC listeners out there, they may think I'm not really in a sensor you know, business, but if they're making appliances or selling furniture or doing clothing or any you know, consumer-facing or business-facing application, we're seeing sensors pop up all over the place in almost anything to track what's happening, where's products in your warehouse and where, where are those items? Is all of a sudden something that's being sensor organized and, and all our clients have warehouses and equipment and customers and shipments. Christian, tell us a little bit, Valencell's kind of in the heart of this with some of the biometric sensors. I guess tell our audience a little bit about what Valencell is doing and, and a little bit about your company. Yeah, of course. So Valencell, we uh, are actually in the more traditional sensor wares. We use our technology, license our technology out. We also sell it through a, a canned module of sorts. But the idea is just similar to a lot of these fitness trackers out there. We, the technology reads, uh, sends light into your bloodstream and the way it refracts sends all sorts of data out, uh, heart rate, blood pressure. There's all these different types of things in that. And as Ted mentioned with the, that feedback loop, it all depends what you're looking to really find. And there's all different metrics out there, fitness-related, lifestyle. Uh, we do things, you know, forced breathing, meditation. It's all, folks are looking for all different types. And the question is, what are the metrics that people want? Uh, but are you just selling it yet to like nursing homes and? A lot of it is the consumer facing, kind of just like what Mark was talking about. These are the wrist-worn devices, earbuds, but also because our uh, technology is very accurate, we're looking into the medical space, uh, also with military and in different industries where safety is, is paramount or where you need very accurate measurements. Uh, might be guys working out on a working out on power lines, things of uh, that nature where people are out in the field and need these types of readings. Right. If you were waterboarding somebody, for example, then you could see, <laughs> you know, if this is really the time to ask them the right question. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's uh, there's a lot of different applications. And, and I think you nailed it with the easy ones are, of course, heart rate and uh, fitness and lifestyle. But it's starting to get into that medical space, uh, looking at first responders. Those things are very important to have those vital signs. And I think that's something that we'll continue to see expand. So Christian, give me an idea of what kind of variables your sensors are able to track. You mentioned something I wouldn't have even thought about, which is, you know, heart rate. What, mm -hmm. what other things? When I think sensor, I think like a GPS sensor. Tell me about yeah. some of the things that can be measured by today's that's, sensors. Yeah, I think that's a, a great question because really we use PPG, which is photoplasmography, which is uh, just essentially reading signals within the blood. And when you without cutting into it, without yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah. The key is actually it's a it's hmm. you. If you ever look at in some of your wearable device, if you have one, you'll see the LED blinking lights, and what that is is just blinking these lights into the bloodstream, and the way it refracts is the way the data comes back. Uh, so within that, you could have heart rate's the easy one, but we're working on blood pressure. We're working on all different types of things. There's, uh, folks have used body temperature, uh, which can come into play for a lot of things, fertility, health, 
uh, other traditional metrics that have been measured by other means now, folks are now looking to be able to put into this small PBG sensor. So you could have in your earbud or on your wrist or wherever, you know, there's other places. Of course, the chest strap is the traditional one, but these metrics can now be more easily uh, obtained through these small sensors that are keep getting smaller as well. Wow. Yeah, so something like body temperature is something that could be transmitted by this device or blood pressure and potentially kind of tracked in real time to create either feedback for you or some monitoring company to say, oh, we see what your blood pressure has been over the last 24, 48 hours. And we're not going to insure you. Yes, yes, (laughs) that's right. You no longer get insurance or we're doubling your blood pressure medication or changing your workout regime. I mean, yeah, I could easily see significant health health consequences. Exactly. And it can be, uh, it might be one small sensor, a combination of multiple sensors, but they're getting, uh, they're doing such a great job of kind of putting them in form factors and boiling them down that, you know, they're kind of everywhere, even to the point where I think you mentioned even in just pieces of clothing, let alone, it doesn't have to be a full-on device or a consumer electronics product. Give me an idea of the size of these sensors. I guess I've I've seen like the Fitbit and, and other stuff, but tell me, you know, what what would... How big are they? Yeah, well, that's, I mean, the goal is always to get them smaller, of course, right? Everyone's always trying to shrink them down. But the actual sensor itself, it's, you know, maybe a, a dime. It's a very, uh, they, we keep shrinking them. There's other parts, too. They have to actually connect to uh, a board, and so it can uh, interface with the actual device. But the sensor themselves are very small, and we're always working to get them down. In looking at it, I was amazed at the volume that's already out there in the wearables market. I think it was over $20 million last quarter. So we've got a lot of markets, and you're obviously bringing up stuff that would be different than the existing market and things that we haven't thought of. And I imagine, like some of these other technologies, that creative people begin getting involved. No one would have thought you could do with a smartphone the things that we now take for granted. So Right. Well, and we're at, once again, we're in the very early stages of this. We're just us starting, I mean, you and I, uh, Mark and I, wouldn't have ever guessed um, that you could uh, read blood pressure or, you know, read uh, anything about your blood just having a light flash on your wrist. But people are finding more and more things they can read, more and more sensors they can use. Doesn't need to be cameras or microphones. You know, there's any number of things. And keep in mind that, uh, you know, there's four ways that your phone connects to the world. So you shut one or two of them off and there are others in there as well. Um, and there are, you know, eight to 10 sensors in your smartphone. So, you know, you could have this in your jacket, you could have this in your socks. I mean, and by that, I mean built into your socks. Um, or you could have it on your smartphone or a ring finger for that matter. Right. So I'm thinking about It's exciting in terms of all the amazing stuff you can do, but it obviously raises privacy implications. If I'm wearing a jacket that's now going to sense body temperature and tell me, you know, that this is the fertile time of month or tell me that I've got a fever or projects that I've got high blood pressure, you know, and we joked about insurance, but obviously there's a lot of information that you may not want your jacket company to know or gets hacked into your server. Ted, are are there rules about what kind of data can be collected and protected, or where are we? I know it's it's early. What what is there anything out there? Very little, um, very little. I mean, right now, the um, Federal Trade Commission and certain state attorneys general, particularly in California, are using their broad 
um, powers to basically say that this is something that a customer would not have expected, a consumer would not have expected. But if you're clear about what you're doing, there's really not much of any rule against it in this country. Now, this country is the key there. It's Canada is very different. Mexico is very different, although they don't enforce their laws the same. Um, and uh, the European Union in particular is, is a real issue on this of what you're allowed to collect. And they actually have a special category that they call sensitive information, sensitive personal information, um, which is more than just personal information. And so in this country, there's not very much of an issue as long as you're clear about what it is you're doing. But you start getting into Europe and, and the laws are very different and it's much more restrictive. And that would be dip- difficult for a business. If you're a general counsel looking at this, you've got to say, in this country, we can sell it under the following rules. And in other countries, we actually have to have more restrictive rules. Yeah. And, and that's, Ted really nailed it there. We deal with a lot of companies throughout the world, and uh, especially in the European and EU. And it's it's something that even in my time at Valencell has changed. I remember the initial deals we did and now we're coming up now, I'm, I'm not sure, and Ted probably knows him much better, that the EU is even looking at further develop, developing that law. And yeah, by, by next year, they're expecting to have an entirely new set of privacy rules. That's right. And it's, it's a challenge for us because we, you know, we want to help these companies comply. We're, in a sense, in the U.S., we are, as Ted mentioned, the, the rules are, are much more lenient or, or lax or whatever you want to call it. But... It's not the case over there. And for example, at Valence, so we have the type of data that's being collected. We, for example, bring in folks from the community and we ask them to test out our products. So hmm. uh, yeah, we give a, you know, an Amazon gift card <laughs> if you come in and, and do some running or do some uh, different types of tests. But we have to ask folks to fill out informed consent forms and you know, how we anonymize the data and aggregate it. Uh, and a lot of times we'll be testing our um, our licensees or our partners' products, and in doing so, just that kind of research and development there that has to be done with both countries in mind, especially if uh, you know we're dealing well, with well. And else. even in this country, one of the things that Valencell brings up and their technology brings up is how divided even the U.S. law is amongst the same kind of data, but collected for different purposes. So, in other words, if Mark walks into the into his doctor tomorrow and goes and gets his blood pressure taken and, and blood work done and they find out all this stuff about him, all that is covered under a law that we call HIPAA, um, which means that the people that collect that information have to keep it enormously private and can't release it or do anything without it other than, A, to help Mark in his health, or B, without Mark's permission to do anything else with it. However, if you collect a valence cell or, or its customer collects all that same data, but not for healthcare purposes, this doesn't fall under HIPAA. So it's not regulated the same way that it would be if you went in and had this information taken from a, you know, from a pure uh, healthcare standpoint. I mean, and the best, mm-hmm. one of the best examples for that is DNA privacy. In that, on one hand, the healthcare industry and the health research industry understands that your DNA is the basic core essence of your being. And we can find out thousands of things about you if we have your DNA. Many of them would be embarrassing or difficult for you. Um, And so they keep it very, very private. And there's lots of rules about that. 
On the other hand, law enforcement sees each one of us as one big sloshing, slogging sack of DNA that is spilling it all (laughs) over the place and leaving it on our cups and our forks when we leave the restaurant, and they can take it and do whatever they want with it. Hmm. I mean, once again, just like with what Valencell has, for HIPAA, it's covered for one set of reasons. What they do, it's not covered at all. DNA, it's covered under HIPAA for one set of reasons. From law enforcement, it's not covered at all. So we have some issues with the regulations in this company. And if you're a company that is looking at you know, how medical information, for example, or even financial information might be regulated, you have to look at how it's going to be used because that might affect whether or not it's regulated at all. You know, for our GCs out there, it seems to me, though, that the line between what's health and non-health has got to be blurry, right? If I'm, you know, using sensor data to lose weight and monitoring my blood pressure to hit fitness targets, is that health or fitness? And what's the difference between, you know, using a sleep aid or sensors to measure how well I'm sleeping? Is that health or fitness? Right. Or well, both? if your I mean, doctor do issues you it, it? Okay. <laughs> then it's health. So if, it's an MD is the magic? It, the magic is, you know, or if it's an MD? It may, it may not just be MD. It may be your pharmacist. But if a medical professional prescribes it for you or suggests that you do this and it's a medically re- related thing and the information is being collected by medical professionals for the purpose of improving your health or monitoring your health, then it probably falls under HIPAA. However, for all these other reasons, once again, if you go get your DNA taken by 23andMe because you want to find out what percentage, you know, Cherokee you are, um, you know, that's not covered at all. Now, their contract might say we won't send this around to other people, but that's not covered. And so if your, you know, if your bicycle, for example, is enabled, which it could easily be, the handlebars, you know, and, and right. know your – your uh, that blood sounds pressure. exciting to me, right? right. Exactly. I mean, you, you know, you don't have to worry about strapping something on or mm-hmm. the pulse monitor. You know, it's built into a watch. But if you're just wearing something or the bicycle itself, you know, is tracking it, right? That's right. That exactly. Could be a exactly. But the, but you know, Huffy or Schwinn or whoever the you're 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 I'm old. You can tell. I don't know who sells bikes anymore. Um, you know, your your bike company may be keeping tabs on you. And on top of that, it probably doesn't just have that. It probably has a geolocator too. So once again, if somebody needs to know where you were last week, um, they may be able to call your bike company and say, was he here and how was his heart rate when he was, he was there? And when did he get off the bike and when did he get back on the bike? Christian, I want to ask you as somebody who's in the area as a GC, where do you see the law going? Is there are there industry groups that are shaping it, or you know, kind of what, what's coming down? Because I'm getting the sense from Ted, there's not a lot of regulation, a lot of questions. Yeah, I what, think that's it's a great question. I think I think there's a lot of uh, consumer advocacy, privacy advocates who are pushing hard to something, just something more than what mm-hmm. there is. Uh, but then on the flip side, you have these companies especially these tech companies that are, you know, their data is their, maybe their crown jewels and, mm-hmm. and they are going to want to be able to use that. And, and you have, maybe it's not a tech company, but maybe it's like a bike company, someone who, who has this, this idea, they want to use it, but they're concerned. So it's, I think it's, you have kind of private industry who want to push these things, who probably 
don't have nefarious intentions, but they want to sell these great products. And, and at the same time, uh, you have people worried of what they're ultimately going to do with that data because it's not entirely clear. Uh, well, what but the they want, and, and, you know, they're not always, the company is not clearly always nefarious in what they're doing. Mm -hmm. At the very least, they would like data on how their product is working and how it's being used because it may help them make the product better. Mm -hmm. It may help them put more money into the kinds of products that their customers want to use versus what they're doing now. I mean, all those analytics are very, very good for products. And the whole Internet of Things we're seeing is not being generally pulled by customers, right? It's being pushed by manufacturers and retailers that want to have that data. And it's not necessarily the data of who you are and what you're doing, mm -hmm. although that's in there too, but it's, it's how their products are being used and when they break down and where the problems are. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point. It's something that we have talked about and, uh, you know, just down to a basic kind of fitness and lifestyle, you know, uh, what type of exercises are people doing? What, and I think you've seen, I don't know if you guys have seen with wearables, this kind of challenge of getting people to continue to use them, getting useful data from them. And part of that is seeing how people use it. And because if you can find a way, you can really make these products better for folks. Well, but it also shows that what's likely to be better work is more passive monitors, okay? Those that would be in your chair, for example, or those that would be in your clothes. So you wouldn't have to go put on your Fitbit every day because it's basically these folks only have the uh, statistics from the obsessive compulsives that wear the thing every day for two years. And then they really know what's going on. But if the rest of us, you know, I've got workout five days a week, but, you know, if it's in my clothes, then I don't really have to think about it. Um, and they still get the information and people still know what I'm doing. Is there any um, thought about, you mentioned sensors in the chair. I think about workplaces where we're going to put sensors in the chair and monitor how long you're actually sitting at your desk or we're going to monitor where your eyeballs are looking eventually, right, where, where your gaze is resting and whether you're can do looking at the work you're supposed to be doing or, you know, staring off into the, into the sky. I mean, are, are employers doing that? I guess that technology exists. Are there limits on what they do there or is this just another kind of uncharted area where sensors could become – you know, essentially, you may not wear anything. You may just go to work or go to the store and you'll be tracked and the shopping cart you're pushing will be tracked and the cereal box you place in the cart will be tracked. And well, it currently is like that in a lot of places. And the law generally says in a workplace, the folks that run the workplace, the employers are allowed to monitor it how they want to monitor it, especially if they have security concerns or theft concerns. There's a company out of Charlotte that I've talked to that does uh, multi-camera monitoring systems. And they have a client that was a, a, a dollar store that their crime went way down when they replaced their two armed guards at each store with these nine-camera monitoring systems um, because they found people would be willing to sneak around the armed guards, but the cameras figured out what people were doing. Hmm. But relevant to this, the cameras are the sensor, Okay, and then they're connected to a real person who would watch. But what made that worthwhile and made it a great system, makes it a great system, is the software that's in between. Because the software figures out, they've programmed in where is likely to be a theft problem. 
what reasons are, are you likely to have to watch? For example, nobody's supposed to be at the back door. If there's somebody at the back door, the cameras click on, the person is watching it right then. How many people are the right person or the wrong person behind the cash register? How many people are in front of the cash register? There are too many of them, that's a problem. So the software actually tells which things to watch. And um, that's part of the scary point is that you can be watched all the time, but then the computer figures out why they want to watch you and what they're watching for. <laughs> and you're right, Mark. There's, right. No, there's little or no rules to it right. at the moment. Right. And then the Terminator comes and <laughs> determinates that you have committed a crime and will be eliminated. Yeah. Well, it's over not, or at least, <laughs> right? at, le at least taken away someplace. That's the next To step. be re-educated. Right. Computer yeah, decides what right. to watch. Then it determines whether a crime has occurred. Then it yeah. determines mm -hmm. the appropriate punishment. And I think that was called yeah. Judge Dredd. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. I was going to say, we don't need lawyers. Yeah. We don't yeah. need lawyers anymore. I wanted to... To wrap up our discussion on censors, we, I know we've got some clients out there that may be saying, oh, I'm not a censor company. I make appliances or I make mattresses. And, and I know we were talking before, Ted, about a real-life story with a mattress company. Maybe you yep. could share with our listeners that may think about incorporating censors but may not have really thought about some of the privacy and regulatory implications of that decision. Right. Well, I mean, you take a look at What's happening right now, and um, mattress companies and bed companies are putting sensors in the foundations so they can tell how long you sleep. So you can tell health issues. I mean, do you have sleep apnea? It would be able to sense that. You know, what is your, where is your heart rate? What's it doing? You know, that is an excellent reason to have the sensor in the bed. It can help your health. But once again, that's not covered by HIPAA. And once again, Sleeping may not be the only thing you do in your bed. Um, and in that case, you know, it's sensing that too. I mean, I tried to raise the issue with somebody by saying, well, what, what happens when they, when, you know, a lot of people, if they have pets, they'll bring pets into the bed, you know, just sleep with their dog or sleep with their cats, you know, and apparently the sensors can tell, you know, uh -huh. what's there, where they are, what they're doing, how their heart rates are, um, you know, but there's a lot to think about. And, and you have this with Fitbits too. I gave a talk in Chicago last year or this year where we talked about the use in divorce court of Fitbits because it has a geolocation. Mm -hmm. So not only do I know you're at the hotel, I know that your heart rate goes up and your heart rate goes down and then you go to sleep for two hours. Um, you know, and that's the right. you know, that's all built into what I can find from the sensors. That are, that are in your Fitbit or in your clothes right. or wherever. And then we'll be seeing apps that, you know, score mattress. You'll get mattress scores based on your nocturnal activities. Exactly. Um, no, it's a different. In colleges. Yeah, it's a different world. Sounds good. Well, we do have a question from our listening audience. And, the, and our listener asked, can you tell me what an outside counsel might be able to do to be better prepared to deal with some of these privacy issues? And I guess any tips that you've come up with through your experience or Ted maybe working with other clients, if they're now alert to this issue from the podcast, are there practical things either to read about, follow, think about, and maybe a few practical tips to end on? Yeah, I think one for us was to really narrow down what you are looking to collect. For us, it might be some of the metrics that we talked about, but if you're a mattress company or, or making trash cans, look exactly what you're looking to collect, and, and that can give you and what you want to use it for, which I think was a, a really important point that Ted pointed out. Uh, and from there, that kind of gives you a, a kind of a working, something to work from to see what ultimately uh, you need to be concerned about. 
Yeah, and I would I would mirror that that in particular there's two parts of this. One, you've got to have a theory, um, a plan, a strategy of what you want to do with this information, and that may evolve over time. Um, but you really need to think about it. That you will be getting information when you start putting sensors in. And you need to sit down and some of your risk management people or, or legal people need to sit down and think of what are we getting and, and how are we going to use it. So you have to think through that and make some plans in and of for yourself. Um, but then you also have to tell your customers, especially if you're taking personal information from sets of people, it's good to be able to tell them we take this type of information or the information that we take, here's what we do with it. We will sell it to other people or we won't sell it to other people. Will we use it for marketing to you? Will we only use it if, uh, you know, if it's been stripped of its uh, personal names? So if we, if we aggregate it together, will we use it that way? So on one hand, you need to figure out really what it is you're doing with it. And on another hand, you need to tell individuals, if you're taking their information, how it's being used and where it's going to go. I think those are great tips. I guess I'd add one more as the litigator in the room. I think very carefully about how you're going to maintain this data and for how long. You probably have an old records retention policy, but if you're all of a sudden collecting literally biometric data on clients about bodies and mattresses and locations, do you really need to keep it? Maybe it only needs to be kept for a matter of days or weeks to provide that feedback and there's no need to keep it. Obviously, there's a data mining aspect where people always want to keep everything because they never know how useful it's going to be. But when you get hit with that lawsuit and you're faced with a, either a subpoena or a document request for all that data or you get hacked um, by a hacker, I think it's a lot better to say, well, there were two days of data taken rather than you know five years of someone's personal data that's been taken, not to mention storage and retention concerns. Right. So, and let me supplement that. That's absolutely true, but also if you are keeping it for a while, make sure that it's encrypted because we're definitely reaching uh, a point in time in business in this country where encrypting data both in movement and at rest is expected. It is the expected norm. Five years ago, it wasn't. Now it is. And the other thing is if you're keeping people's personal data, especially like this, I mean, that's very personal, um, you know, their sleeping habits or health issues about them, don't keep their name associated with the, with the data. You know, you can set it up so that you, you have a numbered account associated with the data and you have a different database someplace else that will allow you to assign a name or a location to the numbered account. But if you, you, it's easy for you to separate that and not keep it together, um, and that minimizes the chance of you letting out really seriously bad information to bad people. That's a great tip, and I think that's a tip that our GCs can implement for all kinds of private information, censor-derived or not. Um, you know, it, those of those listeners that were here know that hacking's a reality. Uh, we talked about ransomware in a recent podcast, um, and we'll be talking more about some cybersecurity concerns. Well, and but Mark, I think I mean, that storage tip. We is had key. a big, we had a big case. I mean, a very, very big case where a, uh, a major state of the union had lost six million tax records and the bad guys that got in were only able to get the records that weren't encrypted because a bunch of the a certain category of the records had been encrypted and a certain one hadn't and they stole the ones that hadn't been encrypted because they they could read them yep 
No, I think that's right. And that's something legal counsel can start asking now. Are we encrypting data? What personal data do we have? And that's something you can, you, you can do that as a loss control technique up front. Terrific. Well, we like to end our podcast by having some fun. We have a prize here today. I know our listening audience can't see it, but we have a very exclusive Tervis Tumblr with Winston the Bulldog. But it's going to depend, uh, Christian, on how you do uh, on this uh, trivia quiz uh, to determine whether you will win it. Um, Okay. You know, I, in looking at, I'm a big pop culture fan for listeners. Uh, I enjoy uh, Star Wars and and Star Trek and and science fiction in general. And as I looked at it, there's been a lot of, of discussion of wearable technology for a long time. So I have a trivia question that relates to different visions of the future. Um, are you gentlemen ready? And, and the way we will work this, Christian, is you'll get the first opportunity. Okay. Um, and if you're unable to answer successfully, then Ted may be able to, to help to you steal. out. Okay. You know, <laughs> to make the steal. All right. Our first question is about the tricorder, an early sensor device. It was a, a bit of a deus ex machina for Star Trek franchise because there were medical tricorders. They were interfacing with computers and scanning tricorders, all sorts of applications in a way to me kind of a precursor to the smartphone in terms of apps and obviously as sensors uh, happen more we may begin to approach the uh, tricorder of star trek days and although it was usually handheld there were a few wrist tricorders but my question is a broader one for star trek fans can you name three star trek captains from any of the TV series. So there were several series. You need to name three. Three. Christian, okay. can you name three? We'll uh, see how many you can get, and then if you need help, we'll help so, you. So uh, Picard? Yes, Captain Jean-Luc Picard, captain of the Enterprise in Star Trek The Next Generation. So I, I, I get mixed up with, well, I don't get mixed up with the show and the movies, but the, uh, I'm blanking on the head of the Starship Enterprise. The, uh, the, the original the, captain. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> James Tiberius. Kirk. Yeah. Kirk, yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yes, Kirk is number two. Um, and he, of course, appears in uh, in the originals. He's also in the movies, yeah. but he is the original Star Trek and captain. Now, the others are more challenging, yeah, so this Spock is the, kind took, of the extra credit. Spock never took Spock command. Spock did not take it's command. It's always so. up in the air for he it. He is a Star Trek character. Well he was known, an admiral at one point. Yeah, he was an admiral, right. but he, I don't he believe— He chose to right. actually stay away from that. But um, I would not count him as a, no, as a no, captain. No, I would So I think— I think I have to pass it off. Pass there. Can you can you help us, uh, Ted, with other Star Trek? We'll start with captains. Janeway. Yes, Captain um, Janeway. Archer. Right. And Archer, excellent. Cisco. Yes. And Cisco. I think that actually that covers the waterfront. Yeah. Those are the uh, well, those are the six official captains, and then there's a new one. A new uh, one well done, up. Ted. Clearly, uh, you know, no hesitation <laughs> there. And again, uh, for listeners, uh, Cisco is a, it was Deep Space Nine. Right. right? I'm a so, big Avery Brooks yeah, fan. Yes, so. Avery Brooks was was great in that. All right. Well done. Question number two. Now, are you guys video game players? Either of you? Yes, I see a nod from Christian and a negative. Ted says (laughs) no. Christian says yes. So this may play to your strengths. Um, This video game series first launched in 1997 and released its fourth installment last year. In the games, players attempt to survive a post-apocalyptic world filled with mutants and monsters. And to help them get through the wastelands, they rely on Pip-Boy, a large wrist-mounted computer. Can you name the franchise? Uh, so I think it's Fallout. Fallout. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. Give that man a prize. Um, Fallout is exactly correct. Um, 
And, you know, I was amazed looking at the numbers. Fallout made more than $750 million um, in its first 24 hours of sale. Jeez, yeah, I think that's been around a long time, too. Fallout. Yeah. So, And I enjoy video games, and my kids have played Fallout. I have not actually dug into Fallout. Yeah, that is that is a game for when you have a lot more time on your hands, the, the most recent ones. I need the more bite-sized ones these yeah, days. Right. Uh, and reflexes, too, I find in some of these games. <laughs> As you get older, the instantaneous yeah. reflexes aren't always there. All right, well done, Christian. Question number three. In what maybe was one of the earliest iterations of wearable tech, what brightly dressed comic strip police detective is known for the two-way wrist radio watch? What was it? Brightly dressed? He's brightly dressed. I think of it primarily in yellow. So it was launched from, in uh, from the comics, from yeah. the old time. It's comics. a comic character, oh. and he's got a oh, wrist. He's got a wristwatch that also he could talk into. That for was a radio. In, Did Dick Tracy have that? Yes, yes, yes he did. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> Good job. Actually, Dick Tracy was launched in 1931 uh, in newspapers, but he didn't get the watch until 1946. For those of you who were around at the time, um, and it became <laughs> two way on TV. Uh, in 1964. Oh, so for 50 years, uh, but he was one of the first with that portable technology, and we've come a long way since Indeed. Dick Tracy As opposed did. to the shoe phone, <laughs> yes. which, which was Get Smart. Yeah, that's right. That's Excellent. right. I loved, uh, I loved Get Smart. All right. And then um, the last question is uh, another character that not only had a, uh, a smartwatch, but also used it to communicate with an artificially intelligent Car. It was Michael Knight, played by David Hasselhoff, used it in a TV show. And the question for you is, can you name the show? Oh, yeah. Knight Rider. Knight Rider? Can you Kit. Can, tell Kit. He gets the bonus I, I point. Watched the, I watched the – we all we grew up watching that show. <clears throat> That's great. Can you tell me what kind of car Kit was? I think was? it was uh, Trans Am or – That's right. Yeah, it was Trans Am. That's right. Yeah, it was an 82 Pontiac Trans Am. So, so all blacked out. That's right. pretty sweet. Yeah. That um, no, that's a, that's an exciting car. Well, and with that bonus, you clinch the uh, Tervis Tumbler. <laughs> all right. Uh, so congratulations yeah, right. Uh, Thank you. on that and, and a good refresher. Obviously, wearables have been around for a long time, but I, I'm convinced after, after this that this is just the beginning. We're going to see amazing change in the, you know, five years in terms of the expansion of, uh, of wearables and sensors of all types. So stay tuned. I hope this has been thought-provoking for our listeners about some of the issues to come that relate to data in, in, in the wearable universe. So, Christian, again, thank you very much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Ted. Thanks to you as well. Thanks look, a lot. I look forward. I think we'll be having Ted join us on a future podcast as well as we delve a little into a topic you touched on, Ted, which is vehicle automation. And we're going to try to de right. dedicate a whole podcast to that topic because I think folks are automating forklifts and other stuff all the time. So if listeners want to hear anything more from you or have questions about the company, Christian, is there a good way for them to contact you? Uh, yeah. If um, I'm on LinkedIn, um, we have valencehell.com. Please feel free to send everything. We're, uh, we're, we're right in Raleigh, and uh, we, we work with people all throughout the world, so we love to hear from everyone. Terrific. And, Ted, I know you do a lot of speeches and stuff. you have anything exciting yep. coming up? Well, I just gave one to uh, Harvard Club in, uh, in New York on um, – ownership and uses of data. We we're talking about new new theories and thoughts about how uh, we might make micropayments for data and how 
people who are putting out all this data that the sensors are picking up might actually profit from it rather than just the businesses. Wow, that sounds very, very interesting. Um, well, and I encourage you to visit. I know Ted's got some links on his uh, webpage at Womble Carlisle with more information on information security. You can also find previous episodes of Bulldog Bites as well as subscribe to this podcast by heading to wcsr.com backslash podcast. Also, while you're there, be sure to shoot us questions and comments so we can tackle them in upcoming episodes. Thank you for listening. Remember, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there. Chew careful.